Chapter 33 of The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Andrew Frame. The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls by Elizabeth O'Neill. Chapter 33, England and Spain. In the year 1558, Mary Tudor, the sad daughter of Queen Catherine of Aragon, had died, and her half-sister Elizabeth, the daughter of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, had become Queen of England. She was only 25 years old then, and she ruled England until she was 70. Mary Tudor had said that when she died, two names would be found written on her heart, those of Philip and Calais. Philip, the Spanish husband whom she loved, and who had left her lonely, and Calais, the only place which England had kept in France, and which had been taken again by the French when Philip got the English to help him in his wars against France. Now Philip would have liked to marry Queen Elizabeth and so keep the help of England, but though Elizabeth never meant to marry him, she did not say no at once. She never really meant to marry anybody. She was very vain and loved to think that men admired her, although they never did fall in love with her as people did with Mary, Queen of Scots, of whom Elizabeth was so jealous. But all through her reign, Elizabeth pretended that she was going to marry first one foreign prince and then another. She did this to keep other countries friendly to England when she needed them, for with all her faults, Elizabeth loved England and was wonderfully clever in keeping her country safe and strong at a very difficult time. When Elizabeth came to the throne, England was not one of the greatest countries in Europe, but it was the greatest of all when she died. There were sad sides to her reign, such as the persecution of the Catholics and Puritans, but in other ways it was a golden age. England became the greatest power on the seas, and the people were full of joy and interest in life. There was a kind of late renaissance in England, when the Italian renaissance was really ending. Great poets arose in England at this time. There was Edmund Spencer, who wrote the great poem called The Fairy Queen in honor of Elizabeth, and there was Sir Philip Sidney, who wrote beautiful sonnets. Sidney was a brave soldier as well as a poet, and one of the noblest men of his time. He was killed while he was fighting for the Protestants of the Low Countries against Spain. A story is told of how when Sidney lay wounded on the battlefield, he was very thirsty, and water was brought to him to drink but he saw a poor soldier who was lying near, also wounded, look longingly at the water, and he told the person who was offering him the water to give it to the poor soldier instead, saying, He needs it more than I do. There was, too, the greatest poet England and perhaps the world has ever known, William Shakespeare. Before the end of the reign, he was writing his wonderful plays, and they were being acted in London. It was a time, too, of great English sailors and soldiers and adventurers, it was no longer Italians like Columbus who were the leaders of discovery, but Englishmen like Sir Francis Drake and Sir Walter Raleigh. It was partly this new love of adventure and the determination to be the greatest of all on the seas that led to the terrible hatred between the English and the Spaniards in Elizabeth's reign. It was partly, too, the question of religion. By this time, Englishmen loved their new religion and hated Catholicism and they hated Spain because she was the most Catholic power of all. All through Elizabeth's reign, the English people were longing for war with Spain, but it was many years before Elizabeth would allow it. She waited until she felt that England was strong enough to conquer. 
Yet long before the war began, English sailors were attacking the great Spanish ships, or galleons as they were called, which were always sailing home to Spain laden with gold and silver and other treasure from the rich mines of the great continent of South America. For nearly the whole of South America belonged to Spain. This is how it had happened. After Columbus had found land across the Atlantic, other discoverers followed him. In the year 1497, an Italian, John Cabot, with his son Sebastian, sailed out of Bristol Harbor in a ship given to him by King Henry VII of England. He discovered the land which is now called Newfoundland, and in other voyages he came upon Labrador. But he always thought, like Columbus, that it was some part of China. It was another Italian, called Amerigo Vespucci, who first declared that he believed the new land to be another continent altogether, and that another great ocean separated it from China. He had sailed to the northern coast of what was afterward called South America. And so although it was through the genius of Columbus that the great new continent was discovered, it was called America, after Amerigo Vespucci, who first guessed that it was not China. But though it was Italians who made the first discoveries in America, it was Spain which had helped them, and soon Spaniards began to be most eager in the search, especially when it was found that the gold and silver and treasure which Columbus had searched for and never found in the north were really to be had in the south. It was a Spaniard named Bilbao who was the first European to look upon the great ocean on the other side of America. Bilbao was one of the many Spaniards who left Spain and went to live at Haiti, the colony set up by Columbus. But Bilbao was not a good farmer, and he was soon in debt. It was a rule that no one could leave Haiti without paying his debts, but one day Bilbao hid himself in a barrel on a ship which was to sail away from Haiti. He crawled out when the ship was well out to sea, and so he got away. But the ship was wrecked on the coast of the Isthmus of Darien, now called Panama, the narrow piece of land adjoining North and South America. Bilbao found that there were many rich villages of natives near. The discoverers called all the different peoples in America Indians, but they were not at all like the people of India, and they were very different too from one another. In the north, the chief race were a red-skinned people, who were called the Red Indians. They were not exactly savages, though they lived very simply. In the south, the people were darker, but were quite different from the Negroes whom Prince Henry's explorers had found in Africa. In some parts of South America, these Indians were civilized and had built great cities, but it was not a very high civilization. In some ways, they lived rather in the same way as the Persians in the days of Xerxes or Darius. They made a great show of gold and precious stones, but they had never found out how to use iron and were not, of course, nearly so civilized as the peoples of Europe. But it was not these more civilized peoples whom Bilbao saw, though he was told about them. Bilbao made up his mind to climb the high mountains which divided the isthmus, and so he did. From the top, he saw the great ocean to the west. He and his companions sang the Te Deum, the great hymn of joy, and set up a cross, taking possession of the sea for the king of Spain. It was a Portuguese, Magellan, who shortly afterwards sailed in Spanish ships right round the south of South America and into the great sea beyond, which he called the Pacific Ocean. Then, too, he sailed right across that ocean for over 90 days until, nearly dead with starvation, he and his men reached the island of the Philippines, as they were called later after Philip II. Everywhere these discoverers went, they tried to make the natives Christians and got them to pay tribute to the great king of Spain. 
But one native prince in the Philippines refused to do this, and Magellan was killed in a fight with him. Many of his men were killed too, and others had died of starvation. And so it was only a few in the Victoria, one of the five ships which had set out on the voyage, who came again to Spain. They had suffered terribly, but they had done one of the most wonderful things men have ever done upon the seas. They were the first to sail right round the world. The straits to the south of South America were called after Magellan, the greatest explorer after Columbus that the world has ever had. Spain's Conquests in America It was not long before the Spanish took for themselves two of the richest and most civilized parts of the new continent, Mexico, the land just to the north of the Isthmus of Panama, and Peru, to the south of it. Mexico was conquered by a Spanish gentleman called Fernando Cortez. He landed on the spot, which was afterwards called Veracruz, or the True Cross, and was surprised to see natives in fine cotton clothes and ornaments of gold coming down to meet them. These men could draw and sketch, for they immediately began making drawings of the Spaniards and their ships, which they called waterhouses. These drawings they carried away to their king, Montezuma. He was a very splendid king and lived in a very magnificent way in his chief town of Mexico. He never walked when the people could see him, but was carried by noblemen. In his palace when he walked, rich tapestries were laid down before him. He never used the same cup or dish twice. He agreed to see the Spaniards, but would not listen to their story of Christ or become a Christian. Cortes really took him prisoner, and the Spaniards, thinking the Mexicans were going to attack them, attacked them first, and a fight broke out. Cortes made Montezuma appear at one of the high windows of his palace and tell his people to stop fighting. But the people were angry and threw stones at him. He was hurt and brokenhearted and died a few days after. Cortes had to go away, but he brought back from Spain more ships and men and laid siege to Mexico. It was a terrible siege, but the young king, Montezuma's nephew, would not give in. At last the city was taken, and the young king thought that he would be killed, but Cortes treated him with great respect, telling him that the Spaniards knew how to respect courage even in an enemy. But Mexico now belonged to Spain, and another beautiful city was built on the ruins of the old. It was Pizarro, a very different man from Cortes, who conquered Peru. Peru was the most civilized part of all America, and the richest. Its kings were called the Incas. They had a great army, but they did not know anything about guns or swords. Pizarro, with a few men, easily conquered them. He had to march miles and miles to reach the capital of Peru and to cross a great range of mountains. He was very brave, but very cruel. The Inca refused to become Christian and was taken prisoner. He made a mark on the wall of the room in which he was shut and told Pizarro he would give him the room full of gold to that height. Pizarro took the gold, but soon afterwards had the king killed, and now Peru, too, belonged to Spain. In the city of Cusco, the capital of Peru, wonderful treasures were found. There were figures made of gold and floors made of silver. The Spaniards sent great shiploads home to Spain, and it was these ships which were so often attacked and taken by the English sailors. At last the Spaniards found that it was safer to send several ships home together, and so they used to gather together in the mouth of the La Plata River in the southeast of South America and sail off at regular times. A number of ships sailing like this came to be called the Plate Fleet. The English and French ships soon began to sail to South America to take their part in its trade, 
But the Spaniards forbade this. English sailors who were caught were carried off to Spain, and dreadful stories were told of how they were tortured by the Inquisition. All this made the sailors of the two nations very bitter, and this is how there came to be endless struggles on the seas long before Elizabeth and Philip began the war between the two nations. One of the greatest sailors of Queen Elizabeth's time was Francis Drake. He was a Devonshire man, like many of the best sailors of the time. He was one of those who had most often attacked the Spaniards on the sea and carried off their treasure. His relation, John Hawkins, was another of these Devonshire men. It was he who started the cruel slave trade, carrying off Negroes from Africa in shiploads to America, where the Spaniards were glad to buy them. For the native Indians were not fit for hard work and were fast dying off, as certain natives always seem to do when the more civilized people take their lands. This dreadful slave trade went on for many years. When Englishmen had settled in North America, they too bought slaves to work for them. The Negroes are a strong race, and there are thousands and thousands of them in America today. They're free now, but this is how they came to America. Francis Drake sailed round the world after attacking the Spanish treasure ships on the coast of South America. It took him three years to do it, and he had to put down rebellion among his men, as so many of these early leaders had to do. It was his friend, Thomas Doty, who led the rebellion, and Drake had his head cut off, although he loved him. For he knew that only so could he keep himself and his ships safe. When after three years Drake landed in England, Elizabeth went herself to Plymouth and knighted him on the deck of his ship, the Golden Hind, which she ordered to be kept in memory of the voyage, and people felt that now, at last, England was as great as Spain on the seas. She was soon to be much greater. King Philip took it as a great insult that Elizabeth should honor the man who had taken Spanish treasure. He was more angry still at the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, in 1587. He said, too, that now he was the real king of England, because the Catholics did not really think that Elizabeth had a right to the throne, because Queen Catherine was still alive when Anne Boleyn married Henry VIII. Philip had already been getting together a great fleet to fight England, and in April 1587, two months after Mary Stuart's death, Drake sailed into the harbor at Cadiz and set fire to 30 ships of the fleet which was lying ready there. He boasted afterwards that he had singed the king of Spain's beard this time, and he wanted to do the same over and over again so that the Spanish fleet would never be able to attack England. But Elizabeth was afraid that while the English fleet was away, the Spaniards might suddenly attack England in another direction and land a great army. The Spanish armies were very fine, and they had many years of training in the wars in the Netherlands, the help given by Englishmen to the Netherlands was another thing which had made Philip angry. So in the spring of 1588, Philip had a great fleet ready to attack England. Some of the Spaniards boasted that it was so strong that it could never be conquered and called it the Invincible Armada. But one great mistake that the Spaniards made was to build great ships, chiefly to carry large numbers of soldiers. They did not understand that the ships themselves should be easy to move and difficult to attack. Their ships rose high out of the water, and their great sides could be easily pierced with bullets from ships lying lower, as the English ships did. The Defeat of the Armada The English ships had more sailors and better ones than the Spanish, which were crammed with soldiers, for they meant really to land their men and fight on land. 
Still, the Spanish Armada was a fine sight as it sailed into the English Channel. The admiral of the English fleet was playing the old English game of bowls with his captains when the news came that the Spaniards were sailing into the Channel. Drake was anxious that everyone should keep cool, and his story tells that he said carelessly, there's plenty of time to finish the game and beat the Spaniards too. For a week, the two fleets fought in the Channel, the English driving the Spaniards before them toward Calais. The English were careful never to get too near the Spanish ships, but would sail just near enough to pierce them with their shots, and then sail quickly away again. The Spanish shots passed over the top of the English ships, and the great army of Spanish soldiers were useless. At the end of the week, Spaniards had lost three of their biggest ships and thousands of their men. Powder and shot ran short on both sides, but the English could get more from the shore, while the Spaniards could not. At last, the Spaniards anchored off the coast of France, but the English sent fire ships in among them and destroyed many more ships. The others put out to sea again. More ships had come to the help of the English, and now at last the two fleets fought a great battle. Again the English won. The wind was with them, and they were able, when they liked, to sail against it, because they knew how to manage their ships, which the Spaniards did not. At last the Spaniards made up their minds to sail round Scotland, and so back to Spain. But a great storm broke out, and many of the ships were wrecked on the coasts of Ireland. Not half of the ships of the Great Armada got back to Spain again. It was partly bad management, and partly bad luck, which caused this great misfortune to Spain. Philip tried to comfort the commander of his fleet by telling him that he had sent him to fight against men and not against the wind. Elizabeth had medals made in memory of the victory, and on them were the words, God blew with his wind and they were scattered. The defeat of the Invincible Armada was indeed the end of Spain's greatness. Her fleet still carried home great loads of gold, but the English often captured them, and it was not long before the command of the seas was divided between the two great enemies against whom Spain had fought so bitterly, the Dutch and the English. Later, these two were to fight each other for the mastery also. The English sailors would have liked Elizabeth to go on fighting Spain until the power of the country was quite destroyed, but Elizabeth was wiser than this. She knew that it would be a mistake to make Spain too weak because Spain could help her in preventing France becoming too strong. Elizabeth kept in mind what came to be called the balance of power, which means that no country may be allowed to become too strong and so conquer the other countries of Europe. Twice since Elizabeth's time, it is seen that France might conquer all Europe and the balance of power be upset. Elizabeth was wise to see the danger, and this was why she would not fight too hard against Spain in the last years of her reign. We cannot help being glad that Englishmen won in the struggle with Spain, but we still must remember that the Spaniards had proved themselves to be a wonderful people. They had led the way in the marvelous discoveries of the new times and proved themselves over and over again thoroughly brave men. If their great time was soon over, and they sank to a low place among the nations of Europe, still it had been a very brilliant time indeed. Just as in other countries, great writers have appeared when the nation had been doing great things. So Spain's greatest writer, Cervantes, lived and wrote in the second half of the 16th century. His great book was the romantic novel called Don Quixote. It is one of the world's great books. Children enjoy it because it's full of fun and adventure, 
and grown-up people because it pictures for us the many different kinds of people who lived in Spain in the 16th century, just as Chaucer's writings show us the people who lived in England in the 14th century. The work of Cervantes and the colonies she still has in South America remain to remind us of the heroic days of Spain. End of chapter 33 England and Spain